Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and as always, it's another new episode on Friday, and we are getting closer to the end of Matthew. We still have a handful of chapters left, but we're going to start the 22nd chapter now, and we're, you know, uh, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're kind of zoning in here on the last week of the life of Christ and his last week of active ministry before he's arrested and taken to the cross and then obviously what we know is crucified and rising from the grave. And so those episodes will be coming soon uh, as we, you know, get closer to the end here. But uh, we have just a few more chapters left of his teachings. Uh, We have a few more parables left to handle. And then we get to, you know, the whole basis, in my opinion, the Christian faith, the, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. So we continue our journey together, uh, working through the Gospel of Matthew. And as I had mentioned, after we finish this, we're going to look at uh, probably the book of Acts. And then we'll start doing some other uh, texts, whether we go back to the Old Testament for a little bit or continue on doing some Pauline epistles. We'll see where uh, that takes us. But we've got uh, a long time before we even get done with Acts. So all of those things coming, you know, section by section, week by week. This show will continue on until we cover the whole Bible, and then we'll see what we want to do after that. You know, I'm sure that'll take me many years to get done. So the 22nd chapter of Matthew, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. This is the uh, parable of the wedding feast, and uh, we will uh, dig into this text here uh, as we get on. Chapter 22 is a little bit longer of a chapter. I'm just looking at my screen now, and if I I grab my mouse and uh, scroll down here, it's 45 or 46 verses, I should say, for the whole chapter. Uh, And there's a couple sections. There's the paying taxes to Caesar, the Sadducees ask about the resurrection, the great commandment, and whose son is the Christ. And so there's a couple of texts that we can put together 
uh, as we work through this chapter. So I envision that we'll do paying taxes to Caesar and the resurrection next week. And then the week after, we'll close out chapter 22 with the greatest, the great commandment and the son of who is the son of Christ or whose son is the Christ. So uh, we'll dig into those as they come and uh, continue our journey. So let's dig into chapter 22, beginning with the first verse. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, after he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his fam, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads, and gathered all of whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding feast was hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him to utter darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So it's an interesting construct of a a parable. And, uh, you know, as with all things, there's obviously uh, context that we have to handle with these parables. And we have to be delicate with how some of this is applied because... If we take a verse particularly out of context, like 14, it can really uh, do some damage to a person's psyche. So we want to treat all of the verses in the proper context and hopefully provide new insight, especially for those who come from a Calvinist or Reformed background. Verse 14 can have a huge implication to limited atonement with the statement that many are called, but few are chosen. And so it has that predestination uh, aspect to it. And it's got some of those, you know, really limited focuses that, uh, they like to hang on to. So let's treat all of these in the proper context as we work through this section and unpack this parable. So the parable repeats three important themes from previous ones. Uh, if we remember back in chapter 21 verses 33 through 46, uh, they are repeating these major themes specifically Jesus's divine sonship, Israel's persistent rejection of its prophets and the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's kingdom. So the wedding feast, uh, we can also take it back to Isaiah 25 verses six through nine, which compares the messianic age to a great feast that is hosted by God. That imagery along with Jesus's self-identification as a bridegroom back in Matthew nine makes it plain that in a parable, the father is the representation of God and Jesus is the bridegroom. So right out of the gate, we should establish that the king being God, the bridegroom being Christ, those who are invited to this wedding are Israel. Inexplicably, they refuse to come to the banquet that has been prepared for them. We know that that happens quite often throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. God is sending prophets into the nation and the nation of Israel rejects the prophets, ignores the prophets, kills the prophets, etc., etc. So the oxen and the fat calves used here 
to demonstrate this wonderful feast that's laid out for Israel to partake in. Israel ultimately rejects. So while some of the guests are, in fact, invited, they ignore it. And as we've seen in the history of Israel, other guests just flat out resort to violence. Mentioned is really the picture painted from Israel's uh, view and reaction to the prophets that have been sent. The cause for this contempt for the word is not God's foreknowledge, but it is the perverse human mind. The human will rejects or prevents and instrument of the Holy Spirit, which God offers it through the call. It resists the Holy Spirit who wants to be effective and who works through the word. Stab against the irresistible grace, because as a Lutheran, we do not believe in irresistible grace. We believe that the human will is tied and in bondage, and when it is tied to the sinful state that we are born into, we have the ability to reject the word and reject the Holy Spirit and reject God's call. And so if you go to a thousand people and you preach to a thousand people, not all of them are going to hear, you know, are going to accept the, the word. And what's interesting is, is like, if I look back at my Calvinist experience, my background or my journey through that camp, you know, they would just simply say, well, those who heard and responded were the elect and the rest were reprobates. Well, then that would mean grace is resistible because they were talked and they were preached to, they were shown God's irresistible grace and they resisted it. So it comes to that notion of, you know, either grace is resistible or you believe in double predestination, which again is a demonstration against scripture that God predestined some to hell and others to glory. So the text is showing here in the parable that there are many, especially throughout the history of Israel, who have heard the call of God and have flat out rejected it. And this is exactly what's happening as Jesus is going about his preaching. He's preaching and he preaches to the Pharisees and the scribes, preaches in front of the Pharisees and the scribes. They hear it and yet they continuously reject him. In fact, they find ways to kill him. So just as they do to the rest of the prophets. So the uh, moving on, I should say. To verse 7, the king is angry and he goes about and sends for destruction. This is an anticipation, a small prophecy, if you would, to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 during the Jewish revolt. So, you know, Christ is saying that there will come judgment upon Israel. He even makes that statement in the Olivet Discourse, which we'll walk through and we'll talk about that lovely topic of preterism or partial preterism. Does all of the prophecies that Christ speak of in terms of end of times, have they taken place or are they uh, only partially taking place or have none of them taken place? And so we will discuss those three views when we get there. However, this is a very, you know, kind of sh uh, light prophecy, if you would, an anticipation to the destruction of Roman AD 70. Now, in the parable, when Jesus is speaking this, the people who are hearing it, the disciples in the crowds, the Pharisees and scribes who are around him, probably don't put two and two together, obviously wouldn't put two and two together. And even still, the prophets or the uh, apostles, when they are sitting with Jesus at the Olivet Discourse, do not put two and two together. And so 
we do know that looking back upon this, that this is that imminent, imminent destruction that Christ is prophesying about that comes in AD 70 when Rome ransacks Jerusalem. So moving on to verse 8, uh, then he says to the servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who are not worthy, uh, or but those who were invited are not worthy. And so they're not worthy of the steadfast refusal to accept or reject the invitation uh, is what is being discussed. And the refusal to accept it is what is actually disqualifying them. So uh, consider this like with the parable of the sower of the seed and those who hear the word and, and ultimately reject it are the ones that are scattered amongst the rocks and have no, has no foundation, has no way to grow roots. It doesn't have anything to take hold. It ultimately just is dead faith. And this is the, exactly what is being spoken of here. The people who have been invited, the whole world for that matter, uh, and we know that many of those, especially here if we look at uh, the context of Israel, for, for Israel, they've been invited and they've rejected it. And now they are disqualifying themselves from partaking in this banquet. And what is really interesting is from a Jewish perspective or an, you know, a Jewish background on this, you know, the kind of the scope of redemption and salvation, if you would, they believe that they are still God's chosen people and that God has a plan of redemption through the Messiah for them. But when the Messiah actually comes and preaches to them and calls them to repent, they reject the Messiah just as they've rejected the prophets. And I just, it flabbergasts me to see and speak with the individuals who flat out reject Christ uh, as Messiah because they think that a man is not capable of earning their salvation or redeeming them of their sin. However, this isn't just merely a man. We know that Christ is both human and God, fully man, fully God, the hypostatic union, his humanity and divinity in one, which would then equate to the capabilities of earning redemption for his people. But Israel ultimately rejects this invitation. They reject Christ and they find themselves in utter destruction as verse seven points to. So moving on to verse nine, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding guest, uh, to the wedding feast, I should say, as many as you find. And so this is kind of a, a an early viewpoint, if you would, of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is obviously go out into the world, making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you go and you make disciples. How do you do that? You baptize and then you teach them. You baptize and then you catechize them. Baptism is first. I love to argue with the people who like to think, well, you have to make a disciple first. Well, how do you make a disciple? You teach them. Okay, well, why? You know, if you want to make it a mathematical equation, then shouldn't A come before B and C? If you say A is the disciple making, B is baptism, and then C is teaching them, how, you know, you make a disciple by first teaching them, then baptizing them? Well, that doesn't make sense. You make a, you make a disciple by baptizing, then teaching and this is why the Lutheran faith is so adamant about baptizing babies, because we welcome them into the family of God, just as I had the privilege of doing here, uh, actually twice in the month of January. Um, we welcomed new infants into our church family and baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they are now going to be disciples. They can now be raised and taught in the Christian ways. They will be catechized when they get old enough to go through catechism class with me. 
and um, pray that they continue on in their journey of faith, just as we do with all of us, because we can forsake that faith and walk away from it. And again, this goes back to the, you know, anti uh, once saved, always saved motion. Lutherans do not believe in that as well. And so it is a construct of, you know, persevering until the end, holding on to that faith until the very end. Boy, I'm just really slapping around at a whole bunch of different stuff here that we don't agree with between the Lutherans and the Protestants. It's kind of interesting. So uh, the many as you find a invitation is the uh, now kind of a foreshadowing to the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom. And as I mentioned, this is kind of a foreshadowing into the Great Commission that will soon come here in Matthew 28. And I think this is an interesting note because now we start to see how Israel has ultimately rejected the Messiah. And uh, by their rejection, as Paul writes, they are uh, cut off from the branches and the Gentiles are being grafted in to the branches. And so this is... um, a, a foreshadowing or kind of a pre-marker to that that will soon come. The Gentiles will be invited into God's kingdom because Israel <clears throat> has ultimately rejected this invitation. Uh, so moving on, so the good and the bad show up, and so this essentially goes out to all the people, right? Uh, the parables in Matthew reported, uh, repeatedly pre- uh, depict the kingdom as including bad people or hypocrites as chapter 13, verse 24 through 30, 36 through 43, and 47 through 50 all point. But in the end, however, there's always a separation of the true and false believers. The wedding hall is a representation of the earthly church. So in the end, in Matthew 25, when we get to that, we'll see the separation of true believers and false believers. Uh, This is not to say by one's vocal proclamation of faith in Christ, but one's lack of demonstration of fruit that they're a false believer, right? We're told by Paul in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. If you hold that so dear, then obviously in whatever capacity you are able to, you will have works that will be demonstrated. And this is not, that means that you have to go and do missionary work and go and serve and give money to all the poor and be, you know, do all these things. But it means that you, have a love to share the gospel and help others. And obviously we know that in some cases that's not always everybody's you know God-given ability to do so. Some people have physical deformities or physical disabilities that uh, prevent them from doing physical work, but they can still do and share God's kingdom through other actions, whether it's uh, simply listening or speaking or providing guidance, providing help, assurance, or whatever. And so everybody has kind of a different, you know, function, if they would, in the kingdom of God, right? Not everybody's the hand of God or the hand of the kingdom, I should say, or the hand of the church. Not everybody's the right toe. Everybody has different functions, but the whole body of Christ moves together and accomplishes the will of Christ. So the parable indicates that both good and bad people, the hypocrites, if you would, those who we would uh, in many cases probably assume wouldn't be believers or uh, in some churches probably would even have them shunned just simply because of their background or the way they dress or because they have tattoos or because, insert whatever here, many churches reject it because they don't match the quote-unquote persona or view of what the Christian life should look like. And this is, in turn, turning them into the hypocrites. 
So the church is made up of all of us. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all have our shortcomings. We all have our sin. We all have our problems, our worries, our doubts, our our problems. And yet we are a part of this great, beautiful thing called the church. So the wedding garment, this is an interesting verse. We're going to park here for a few minutes. And this is verses 11 and 12, right? So the king comes in and uh, finds the good and the bad mix. But he finds one individual who has no wedding garment. So the Israelites, uh, as we know that these, this is the you know parable to the Israelites, so this is why we have this imagery here, uh, they were expected to invite guests to wear festive wedding garments, which the host would or could provide. Thus, this fellow's failure to dress in appropriate clothing, which was freely given to him, offends the host. This garment uh, signifies the righteousness of Christ, or, uh, which is the covering of our sins, as Isaiah 61.10 state and Galatians 3.27 state. Now, there's a couple different ways to interpret this verse. And I want to you know, point out to, you know, obviously there's probably more than just the two that I'm going to give you, but one is being what I just read, that it is the clothing of righteousness that God is freely giving. However, one receives that in their baptism. And I know I'm going to be, you know, jumping on them toes again for you, for all those outside of the Lutheran circle. But baptism is the fundamental piece to the Christian faith. That is why it is at the forefront of all things that we do. And and I and I really I have a beef with people who think that they um, should wait to be baptized or should deny baptism to people based upon their ability to make a statement of faith or proclamation of faith. Uh, I I despise people who hold baptism from infants and children. And and this is one of those things why. Because in baptism, what are we? we? We're clothed with righteousness. If we go to Titus 3.5, we see that it is Christ through the washing and regeneration of his church who clothes us in righteousness. And we can just, we can pick that all up from almost every biblical verse in the New Testament on baptism, whether it's Matthew 28 or Romans 6 or... um, you know, Titus three or whatever it may be. There's, there's plenty of them out there and we've covered baptism extensively on this show last summer. So baptism is that fundamental piece to which all Christians ought to go through. And I am very adamant that to be in, in a part of the Christian body, you should be baptized. And especially if you are partaking in the sacrament of Holy communion, you should be baptized. You should be a baptized professing believer in Christ. So how does one receive that garment to the wedding? You are baptized into the family of God. You are made an heir to the family of God. And this would give you that free wedding garment. But there are going to be those who come into the church and essentially kind of like how this one is depicted. This guy just really just doesn't understand. He He's there. He was invited. He comes in. He doesn't have the clothing. And he just kind of stands around dumbfounded. He's speechless, right? Where's your wedding garment? And he's speechless. And the king says, get him out of here. So I, I would venture to say that throughout the church age, many have stumbled into the church at one point or another and have kind of gawked at what's going on. They might have even become participants in it, but they've never really truly had authentic faith. They never decided to be baptized. They never took the actual step in receiving and believing the gospel. They just simply showed up because it was fun or showed up because their friends wanted them to or showed up because they were interested or something was drawing them, but they never actually believed the gospel promise. Therefore, they've never 
were they were you know it's almost like you're handing them the free garment the wedding garment you're handing it to them and it's like right inches from them and they look at you and they're like i don't i don't, I don't know why i need that what, what do i need that for what what you know what's going on like they just are simply dumbfounded at, at the pr- presentation of it why do i need to be baptized why do i need to participate in the lord's supper why do i need community so those are things that they can actively do and reject the gospel still and that's the same thing going back to Israel with the invitation that was sent out by the by the, the king's servants. All of these people continuously reject that invitation. This man who somehow finds his way into the wedding feast has rejected the free wedding garment. And they, you know, he will not be clothed in the righteousness of God. So the uh, gentleman is cast out into utter darkness and Jesus is not talking about an earthly party, but about salvation. The exclusion and punishment is a depiction of hell. Now, it's interesting, uh, and I make this statement, you know, a few times here and there, uh, that, you know, the, the, the viewpoint of what we think of hell, the hellfire and brimstone, the lake of fire and all that, doesn't take place until the day of judgment. That's where Jesus says that the unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire. That has been prepared for Satan and his demons before time. There's nobody in that right now. And so I really want to stress, at least in my eschatological understanding, that we can use the word hell or Hades or the, you know, uh, the place for the unbelievers, whatever word you want to give them. Uh, and this is essentially signified throughout the New Testament as a place of utter darkness, a placing of gnashing of teeth and weeping. And so this place is a separation from God already. Then they will be called out of that on the day of resurrection, and then they will be ushered into the line of goats and then cast into the lake of fire. So they're already essentially in torment, and then now they're moved into the lake of fire for permanent eternal torment. So this man will be cast into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a you know, demonstration that judgment has fallen upon him. He has rejected Christ. He's rejected the invitation, the wedding garment, and now he will spend all eternity in torment separated from God. That's how I view, you know, the in-between time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ with those who died who are unbelievers. They go to this place of utter darkness. And again, like I said, you can, you can assign whatever name you want to it. Hades, the underworld, hell. Uh, Hades really is just the Greek for hell. So the place of the dead, all of these things you can use uh, as a means to title this location. So... Many of those who are called into God's God's kingdom miss out because they refuse to respond to the invitation properly in faith. This does not mean that God is unwilling to save everybody, but the reason some are not saved is as follows. They do not listen to God's word at all. I want to repeat that. The reason they are not saved is not because God has determined them not to be saved or unwilled them to be saved. God is very willing to save them all, but the reason they're not is because their, their, their will is hardened, their heart is hardened, and they do not listen to the word of God at all. They have rejected him. They've hardened themselves so much that they care not for the things of righteousness and they only want the things of the world. Paul writes in Romans 1 that they have been turned over to a debased mind where they had rather live in their sinful ways than live in a manner of righteousness. So, that is where essentially we reject that contract of limited atonement. And, and really, limited atonement is more so focusing, obviously, on the construct of the death of Christ. Was his death sufficient for all or some? And 
you know, the viewpoint of many are called can also reflect on uh, all essentially being called, right? But the understanding of many is simply that the gospel is going to reach only so many people in the history of the church, right? There were people who, you know, were alive during the time of Christ and thereafter during the time of the apostles who never heard the gospel. And now whatever God has designated for them, that is between God and them. And so the gospel call can't possibly reach every single human individual in the world in all the time. So the word of many is applied here that uh, many in terms of a lot, great crowds will be uh, spoken and preached to, but only few are actually chosen. Only those few, which still can be many, you're just contrasting a great portion of people versus a lesser portion of people. So if you have 8 billion people in the world right now, and let's say every single one of those 8 billion people were preached the gospel, that's a many, that's a many, that's a lot of people, but only 6 million of those people or a billion of those people come to the gospel, then that's less. That's only a few, right? Or, you know, 2 billion people, for instance, come to the gospel. That's considerably far less than the 8 billion that were preached to. So we would consider that a few. So it's just a it's just a differentiating of words being applied here. It's not that, you know, 10 people are going to be given the gospel, but only one person is going to respond, which very well could be the case. But we have to understand over the course of the church age, over 2,000 years, all of the billions of people who have been preached to and how many people have actually come to know Christ. So the number is greatly lesser than the number who have been preached to. So through God earnestly invites all to his son's feast. Some refuse to accept his invitation and so fail to enjoy its richness. Coming from a long line of believers does not guarantee anyone a place in God's kingdom. Uh, And this presumption or ingratitude uh, ever threatened to lead us away. Though we may in no way deserve mercy, the gospel earnestly invites us to come and join the Lord in his eternal heavenly banquet. So just because your whole family has a history of being, you know, uh, well-grounded Christians doesn't mean that you are automatically incorporated in that. And we see kind of how that falls within the nation of Israel. Just because you're amongst the 12 tribes, you have, you know, the the blood in you uh, of being one of God's chosen people doesn't automatically give you the inheritance. You still have to have faith. And so this is where we you know, go, come back to the construct of the parable that those who have faith will be saved. So... That's uh, the parable of the wedding feast. You know, there's still probably so much more that could really be spoken about it. But uh, for time's sake, we're going to pause here for the day and uh, let you go about your weekend. I hope you guys have a great Friday. And it is just a few days before Sunday. So make sure you're in church and hopefully you can partake in the sacraments and hear the word preached to you and hear the gospel given after the law has crushed you. I pray that you are sitting under faithful and godly teaching. Until next week, ladies and gentlemen, check out our Saturday show, and uh, we are continuing our journey through reading the Bible in a year, and I hope you guys are enjoying that. Short shows uh, on that, just kind of a, you know, little bits of, hey, check this out and check that out, pay attention to this, and, you know, look forward to that. So, very, very simple, nothing that's exegetical in any manner, but that's that. So, thanks again, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you have a great week. God bless. We'll see you later.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.